Well, uh, last week we began a new teaching series uh, that we're calling Well Read. It's a teaching series on the Bible, and I believe it's incredibly important. You need to know right up front that I firmly hold the conviction God said it, that settles it, I believe it, or God settles it, I believe it, that settles it, whichever way you do that, I believe that firmly. But you also need to understand that the people around you today, including an awful lot of Christians around you today, are asking questions like, how do you know God said it? And why should I believe the Bible? Now, let me just stop right here and say, if those sorts of questions upset you, if those sorts of questions have a tendency to bother you or offend you, I strongly encourage you to go ahead and get over that. First, because a lot of people are asking those kinds of questions and have been for a while. And second, because in all honesty, they're really good questions. See, frankly, the problem isn't that people are asking those kinds of questions. The problem is too few Christians are prepared to answer them. In fact, the really awful reality today is not as many people today are asking those questions as were at one time. And one of the reasons fewer people are asking today is because so many people have concluded there's just no answer. And the reason they concluded there's just no answer is because so many times when they would ask those questions of Christians, the Christians they asked them of would get upset and often fail to have an answer for them. Last week, I began by teaching a little bit about what the Bible has to say about Scripture. And uh, we gave out these Scripture memory cards. I uh, hope you took one with you. If not, there are more available in the pub tables out in the foyer. And urge you to begin memorizing 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. That we would do that together through this series. So right now, just to kind of get us focused and moving, I'm going to ask you to stand with me as you're able. If you've memorized uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, you can say this from memory. And if not, you can just read it off the screen, whether you're with us virtually or here. But let's just use this to get us moving this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. This is what the Bible says. Together, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Praise the Lord, this is the word of the Lord, and you may be seated. Now, typically when you ask a Christian, why do you believe the Bible? The answer you get is something like this, well, because it's God's word. And if you ask them, where did you hear that? Who told you it's God's word? They'll tell you in the Bible. And the truth is, it doesn't take a tremendous amount of effort to recognize there's a little bit of a problem here. In the world of informal logic, that's called circular reasoning. And it is a logical fallacy. Circular reasoning goes something like this Tom's an honest guy. How do you know that? Tom told me. The problem, of course, is that if Tom isn't an honest guy, if Tom is actually something of a scoundrel, you really shouldn't trust what he has to say about himself. And that raises a question about the Bible. What if the Bible isn't trustworthy? Why should we take its word for its own trustworthiness? To the skeptic, 
or for that matter, to the honest inquirer. To say you can trust the Bible because the Bible says you can is a staggeringly unconvincing argument. Again, last week I shared with you just a bit about what the Scripture has to say, about the power and the nature of the Scripture. For me, that has great meaning. Because quite a long time ago, I made a quality decision to believe in and trust and honor Scripture. But for those who have not yet made that decision, what I shared last week probably isn't very helpful for them. So what is there for them? Or for that matter, what is there for the sincerely curious child of God? Let me start with this question. Is it even okay at all to ask for some sort of evidence? To ask for some sort of reason to believe the Bible outside the testimony of the Bible itself? Or is that simply insulting to the Bible? Is that disrespectful of the Bible? Let me answer it plainly by saying, God has never been afraid of honest inquiry. And Christians must never be afraid of or offended by honest inquiry. The truth is we ought to be consistently inviting it, begging people to ask questions about God and the Bible because God and the Bible will stand up to those questions. On one occasion, the Jews were trying to kill Jesus because things he was, the things he was doing and the things he was saying made it clear that he was suggesting he was equal with God the Father. And part of Jesus' response to them, to his doubters, was this. If I testify about myself, Jesus said, my testimony is not valid. There is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is valid. Now, let's stop here for just a second. The first thing I want to be very clear about is this. When Jesus says, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not valid, Jesus is not saying that he cannot or should not be trusted. Jesus is simply acknowledging what the Jewish law had already acknowledged. That to be believed, especially in the big issues of life, you need to provide testimony beyond simply your own word for it. He was referring to the principle in the Jewish law that multiple witnesses are needed to be able to judge a matter rightly. You find it in Deuteronomy. You find it in Numbers. You find it all over the New Testament. For example, the requirement that two or three witnesses are necessary to convict someone of a capital offense in the Jewish law was born of the general understanding that at least in very important matters, it's unreasonable to expect someone just to take your word for it. Did you kill that guy? No. Might want some witnesses. So when it came to Jesus' claims about himself there in John chapter 5, even though he was, in fact, God in human form, he was still willing to give evidence beyond just his own word. He gave his doubters reason to believe, and he did so to help them. 
he did so, according to verse 34, to increase their chances of being saved. In other words, because he loved his doubters, he gave them outside evidence in addition to just his own word for why they should believe him. So the passage goes on. You have sent John, Jesus said, referring here to John the Baptist. You've sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. I have testimony weightier than that of John, Jesus said, for the very work that the Father has given me to finish, and which I am doing testifies that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You've never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Jesus responded to his doubters recognizing it was reasonable to want more proof than just his word. And so he offered it to him, to them. First, he pointed to the testimony of John the Baptist, a recognized prophet whom they had trusted and respected, in fact, whom they had inquired of about him and who had publicly testified, this is the Lamb of God. He's got power to baptize in the Holy Spirit. Second, he pointed to the evidence of the miracles he was doing, the miracles that he had been performing, healings and things like that. And by the way, the healing ministry of Jesus was not just some, some divine, gracious, kind of urgent care ministry. The miracles of Jesus were performed fundamentally to validate his message and his identity. Third, he pointed to the testimony of God the Father himself, perhaps referring in part to the audible voice of God that spoke concerning him at his baptism, but certainly referring to the testimony of God found in the Hebrew Scriptures. So my point here is simple. When claims can be verified by normal means, it is reasonable to ask for that. And when people ask Jesus if he really was who he said he was, he was happy and he was ready to offer evidence. And so I urge you, when people challenge you on the trustworthiness of Jesus or of the Bible or of whatever, to be ready to respond to them winsomely, to respond to them happily, lovingly, graciously, with more than, well, that's just what I believe. After all, the Bible that I suspect you want to honor plainly tells you always, say always, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone, say everyone, who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. So where does that leave us? Now, I honestly do believe the Bible is the Word of God because it says so. You need to understand that's not where I got started. It's important to understand this. I don't believe in God because of the Bible. I believe in the Bible because of God. I am convinced of the reality of God 
I am convinced of the truth of the gospel, of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And those convictions in turn have moved me to trust the Bible as it is and for what it says. I'll get to that in a moment, but before I do, I want to make one more point. Uh, uh, Namely, that while believing that the Bible is the Word of God, because it says it is the Word of God, while that is indeed a bit of circular reasoning, it is not, therefore, an invalid statement. I mean, after all, if Tom tells you, hey, dude, I'm an honest man, he may actually be an honest man. The fact that he testified that about himself doesn't inherently make it invalid. It just means it's reasonable to want some corroborating evidence. Additionally, because the question of the Bible being the Word of God is a question of final or ultimate authority, absolute authority, then some measure of circular reasoning is frankly inescapable. Everybody who who makes decisions based on some kind of final or ultimate authority in their minds is forced to reason in that way on occasion. For example, the person who trusts fundamentally in their own reason does that because they find it reasonable. Someone might say they only trust what they can know with their senses, what they can see or smell or touch or hear with their own senses because nothing else has ever been proven to exist. What they're really saying is nothing else has been proven to exist apart from their sensory experience. That makes it a circular argument. It doesn't mean nothing exists outside their sensory experience. It just means that if something exists outside their sensory experience, their senses are incapable of recognizing it. To say that's the only reason I way I'm going to believe it is a circular argument. The bottom line is this then. When dealing with first principles or fundamental propositions, a degree of unprovable is always there. And a decision has to be made at some level based on some measure of faith. The best decisions in those cases are made based on the evidence not based on personal preferences or prejudices. And I want to submit to you this morning that the vast majority of people who reject the authority of the Bible do so based on their personal prejudice against it rather than on a careful consideration of the evidence of its reliability. So why am I so confident that I can and should trust the Bible? In short, because it has demonstrated itself trustworthy in a great and varied number of deeply significant ways. In other words, I trust the Bible based on the rock-solid evidence of its trustworthiness. It has proven to be thoroughly reliable in areas that can be verified. And so I have tremendous confidence in it in the areas that are untestable. Let me briefly mention just five reasons for you that I trust the Bible. First, and most importantly to me, I trust the Bible because Jesus trusted the Bible. It doesn't take long to recognize that Jesus treated Scripture as authoritative. 
when people would come to him with questions or challenges, he would regularly refer to Scripture as authoritative in answering the question or the objection. In fact, in the four Gospels, Jesus makes at least 35 references to Old Testament Scripture. Because I trust Jesus, because I believe He is the resurrected Lord, I am compelled to trust the Bible in the same way He did. Number two, I trust the Bible because it is so extraordinarily historically accurate. When assessing the trustworthiness of any source, the idea is to establish as much reliability as possible in areas that can be verified so you can have confidence trusting it in areas that are untested or maybe even hard to believe. For example, in a criminal trial, if a witness can be shown to be wrong about unrelated issues, then his testimony about the crime itself is thrown into question. Now, the Bible is an incredibly large book, well over 1,300 pages on average in printed form. It's filled with innumerable details covering thousands of years of human history and yet never, ever, not once, ever has a single archaeological or historical discovery ever been made that controverts a single biblical reference. Let me say that again. In spite of being by far the most investigated book in human history, there has never been an archaeological or historical discovery to disprove any claim of Scripture. On the other hand, a vast number of archaeological discoveries have verified countless statements in the Bible, and numerous archaeological discoveries actually happened because the researchers took seriously statements in the Bible. Biblical references to cities, buildings, rulers, and nations have proven accurate time and time again, even in some cases uh, uh, after years of doubting by critics and experts. Let me give you one quick example. According to the book of Daniel in the Bible, Belshazzar was the last king of the Babylonian Empire, and according to the Bible, he was killed when the Persians came in and invaded Babylon and conquered that empire. For a long period of time, experts used that passage from Daniel chapter 5 to disprove the Bible. Because at the time, based on all the best information they had, number one, no record of a Babylonian king named Belshazzar existed. Number two, based on all the records, the last king of Babylon was a guy named Nabonidus. And number three, based on all the records, Nabonidus was captured by the Persians and not killed. Some tried to reconcile the accounts by suggesting that Belshazzar was simply another name for Nabonidus, but that didn't solve the was he killed or was he captured question. And then archaeologists found more stuff. They found records that revealed, number one, Belshazzar was the oldest son of King Nabonidus. And number two, King Nabonidus went into self-imposed exile far from Babylon and in that exile handed over the rule of the kingdom to his son Belshazzar. Those records make then perfect sense of the rest of the records they had. It explains why Belshazzar was killed. He was in Babylon when the Persians attacked. While Nabonidus was captured, he was far away from the siege when it happened. 
And finally, for many years, people mocked Daniel's account because according to Daniel 5.29, Belshazzar was so pleased with, with him explaining a, a prophetic event that he made him third highest ruler in the kingdom. And people said, how silly is that? Why would he make him third highest ruler in the kingdom? Well, archaeology explained it. Because Belshazzar was, was serving as king on behalf of and under his father, the king, Belshazzar was already second in the kingdom. The highest thing he could give away was third in the kingdom. You can scoff at the Bible all you want to, but you cannot deny that it nailed its ancient Babylonian history. Third, the manuscript evidence for the accuracy of the New Testament writings we have is unprecedented, unparalleled, and overwhelming. Today, virtually all serious biblical scholars will acknowledge that the books of the New Testament were written somewhere between 15 and 65 years following the death and resurrection of Jesus. In other words, they were written within the lifetime of the original apostles. For another thing, we have so many ancient manuscript copies of the New Testament that we can be academically certain. I'm not talking about faith. I'm talking about rigorous, strenuous scholarship. We can be academically certain that virtually everything you read in your Bible today is what was originally written almost 2,000 years ago. To be specific, we have more than 20,000 ancient manuscript copies of the New Testament. In terms of all of ancient literature, the closest in comparison is Homer's Iliad, for which we have 643 copies. There's more than 19,000 more copies of the New Testament than the second leading piece of ancient literature. Number four. In a recent Advent message, I pointed out to you just a little bit of the powerful confirmatory evidence of biblical prophecy. In that message, I pointed out to you the, the staggering, the mind-boggling mathematical odds of just one person accidentally fulfilling eight of the 330 Old Testament uh, uh, prophecies about the Messiah. Jesus fulfilled all 330. The staggering accuracy of biblical prophecy moved Justin Martyr to refer to it repeatedly in his first apology, his first defense of the Christian faith to the Roman emperor around A.D. 150, fifth and finally. There's the evidence of the dramatic impact Scripture has had in the lives of countless people throughout the ages, including mine. No other book moves me so powerfully whenever I read it. No other book has ever made more sense to me of the world, of the history of the world, or of the things I encounter day after day. No other book has ever so accurately exposed my own flaws, weaknesses, and needs, nor so accurately prescribed the way forward. There is a reason the Bible is the single best-selling, most translated, and most widely distributed book in all of human history composed by some 40-odd authors over a period of roughly 1,500 years, it tells one continuous story that continues to change lives today. There are so many reasons, so much evidence, so many reasons to trust the Bible. I mentioned earlier that when trying to assess the trustworthiness of a source, the idea is to consider the available evidence carefully in order to determine as much as possible how reliable that source is in areas that can be verified. More than any other written source in the history of the world that deals with the greatest and weightiest issues of life, 
The Bible rises to that challenge. If any of you have ever worried, is the Bible going to make it? In this world of doubt, in this world of skepticism, in this world of secular, is the Bible going to make it? I want to close with two, two historical examples of the resiliency of the Bible. In A.D. 303, in an effort to completely destroy Christianity, the Roman Emperor Diocletian issued a decree that every Bible in the Roman Empire be taken in and destroyed. Thinking he had succeeded, he erected a pillar bearing the words, Extincto nomine Christianorum. I have extinguished the name of Christian. Less than three years later, in A.D. 306, he was succeeded as Roman emperor by a guy named Constantine. During his 31-year reign, he legalized Christianity throughout all the Roman Empire and replaced the pagan symbols throughout the empire with the sign of the cross. Some 1,400 years later, there's a famous, wildly famous French writer and philosopher named Voltaire, prominent atheist of his day, humanist. He wrote, 100 years from my day, there will not be a Bible in the earth except one that is looked upon by an antiquarian curiosity seeker, maybe in a museum, he said. Twenty years after Voltaire died, his house was purchased by the Geneva Bible Society and used as a place for printing Bibles. It ultimately became the Paris headquarters for storing and distributing Bibles all across Europe. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a great and a good and a gracious God. And you are gracious to us in our wonderings, in our questions, in our desire to know more fully. You're gracious to give us reasons to believe. That, that, that we would love you not only with our heart and soul, but with our mind and with our strength. Lord, you meet us where we are because you love us and want us where you are. Help us, Lord, grow in our faith and our trust in you and to grow in our skill in knowing and understanding your word and in sharing it and defending it with others. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.